I want to take a minute as I just begin this morning to, to kind of remind you. Because um, we've been now for several months in the book of Ephesians, and uh, you know, there, there's nothing for me as a preacher like just being able to take a book of the Bible, start in chapter 1, verse 1, and just teach what the Word of God teaches. Um, and somebody, I was talking with someone in between services, and they were saying, oh, I just really appreciate you teaching from the Word. And I said, you know, honestly, I have no idea what I would talk about Sunday to Sunday if I didn't have the Word of God to teach, because there's a bazillion ideas out there, right? Everybody's got an opinion. You can watch the talk shows, and you can listen to, you know, the talk radio, and you can go to uh, political websites and social media and all that kind of stuff. There is no uh, lack of opinions out there, and there's no lack of human ideas out there. But what an awesome thing it is that God has provided for us and preserved for us His Word, the Bible, so that we actually have something life-changing and world-changing to talk about. Amen? So we're in the book of Ephesians, and we're just kind of tearing it apart verse by verse. And, and now that we're over halfway through with this book, I want to just remind you of the setting of this. I want you to just remember, when we talked about this way back in the first week of this series, I just want you to remember what's going on here. This, this group, these Ephesians, these, these people in the city of Ephesus, these Christians, new believers, right? It's the first century, the second half of the first century. It's about 30 to 35 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, and the church is just getting established. It's just an infant church. It's a baby church. It's just getting started. And Paul is going from place to place and sharing the gospel, and he comes to this place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus to us is just maybe uh, that you, you maybe never even heard of Ephesus except that it's, uh, there's a book of the Bible named for it. Uh, but, but Ephesus is still a city, and it's uh, one of the oldest cities in the world. And at that time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a metropolis. It was a cultural center. It was a place where everybody passed through and exchanged ideas. It was a place where different cultures met and mixed, which was very unusual in that, in that day and time. It was a place also that was known. It was known throughout that region of the world as the place to go if you're interested in religious stuff, if you're interested in spiritual things, and particularly if you're interested in dark spiritual things. There were sorcerers everywhere in Ephesus. You could pay someone to put a curse on somebody. You could pay someone to, uh, to conjure up something for you. There was all kinds of black magic and dark arts and all of that stuff being practiced. People being ripped off by people that were just trying to make money on it. And also there were people who were in league with demons who were doing all kinds of terrible stuff. And it was all part of the religious mosaic of that city. There was also this, uh, there, were, there were just temples everywhere to all of these false gods. And in the center of the whole thing is the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, which is, which is uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this spectacular, amazing temple that people will come from all over the place, still today come from all over the place to see the ruins of this temple. But the, the temple was this spectacular accomplishment of architecture, and it was used to worship this fertility goddess, and so everything that went on there was all about sensuality and sexuality and perversion, and there were temple prostitutes that you would go and visit and call that an act of worship, and it was just perverted, and it was filthy, and that's what that city was like. 
and it was filled with sensuality. It was filled with perversion. There was no longer any view of what is right and what is wrong. It was just whatever, whatever works for you, whatever you feel like. If it feels good, do it. And, and there was, uh, as I said, all kinds of um, sort of paganism. Now, we live in the Western world in the 21st century, and we think paganism is something that only happens among tribal people somewhere. You couldn't be more wrong. Paganism is flourishing in our culture today. You can't drive 10 miles down Route 66 here without passing 10 different palm readers, right? There's, there's all kinds of stuff that is being offered in the name of various gods and false gods. Um, and, and, and there's people that are still looking for power. They're looking for a reason. They're looking for something to connect to on a spiritual level, even if they reject God. And so we look at a society like this in Ephesus where there's perversion, there's idolatry, there's, there's um, paganism, there's um, people throwing off all constraints socially and doing whatever they want. And we see something like that and we think, wow, can you imagine living in a culture like that? Right? You, you may think, hey, th- this, this is 2,000 years and a whole bunch of cultures removed from me. What he has to say to these Ephesians couldn't possibly mean much to me. And I'm here to tell you that our society today looks more like the Ephesian culture than it does like anything the Bible describes for us. And so this book of Ephesians was not just written to the Ephesian church. It was written to be distributed to all of the believers in that part of the world and to be continuously distributed so that we have it today. This is Paul's letter to the whole church for all time, and it was written to us. And Paul has been telling us about how much God loves us. Three chapters of you have been loved by God, you have been chosen by God, you've been adopted by God, you've been made an heir with God. You, he has taken care of overcoming all of your weaknesses. He's broken down every wall. He has made you one with one another and one with him. He has made you his sons and daughters, your joint heirs with Jesus. And he's been giving us all of this stuff to just go, wow, this is amazing how, how good God is and how much he loves us. But now as we turn into chapter 4, as we did last week, we're going to begin to see that Paul is taking on the role here of a football coach. He has got us in the locker room before the game begins. And what he's trying to do is get us ready for what's about to happen. And, and this is a big part of what a coach does because once the, once the whistle blows, the coach has to stand on the sidelines, right? So what does he do? He tries to get everybody ready for the game, and he says, listen, we're about to go out here, and everybody says we can't beat this team. Everybody says this is an undefeated team that we're playing against, three-time state champions. Their guys are bigger than us. Their budget is bigger than us. Their coach is better than ours. They got everything going for them, and we're just these little guys. But we know what's going on in this locker room. We know who we are in here, and we know we're not going to let anybody come into our house and push us around on our field, and the guys are going like this, they get all excited, they're ready to go, Right? And his job is to give them a pep talk because he knows that they're about to go out on a field and face a foe that if they are not completely focused and completely sure of their power, they are going to get destroyed. And so his job is to get us ready to go play the game. And he's been spending time, three chapters worth of time, of getting us ready to go play the game. And now in chapter 4, he says, now, let me tell you how to do it. And he's going to send us out there, and it is time for us to play the game. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you don't already have a marker there, it's in the New Testament. 
you'll find Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians. If you get to Philippians, you went too far. Just take a minute and go there. Take your little ribbon and stick it in there if you have a bookmark because we're going to continue to be there for some time now. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 7. Let me just read it to you. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And let me just kind of encapsulate this for you before we go on. He's talking about Jesus here, and he's just, he's just um, Paul is a theologian. He just can't help himself, right? So he says something that to you or I might seem very straightforward, and then he goes, they might miss the depth of this, let me give them more. So he says, you know, he ascended and he gave gifts to men. And we think, okay, move on. And he goes, you know, speaking of that, let me just tell you a couple of things about what I mean when I say that. When I say he ascended, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the one who descended, right? Where did Jesus come from? He's trying to set a, a context for us. Where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven, right? He has always existed. He has always been God. Never let yourself start thinking that somehow when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, he began to exist. Listen, you began to exist when you were conceived in your mother's womb, but Jesus is eternal, Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one that spoke into creation everything that exists. So he did not begin to exist when he became human. But there came a point when he descended to the earth and became human so that he could pay the price for our sin. That's the gospel. Now, it says that he de descended to redeem a host of captives. There are these, these people. Look what it says. When he ascended, verse 8, on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, that he's going to descend, and then he will ascend, and he's going to lead forth a, lead forth a host of captives. Who were the captives? We are. We were the ones who were enslaved to sin. We were the ones who were lost in our sin and unable to save ourselves. And Jesus came along, paid the price for our sin, redeemed us, and made us his own. And the way that a conquering army would ride into a city and fight in order to set free prisoners who had been kept there, and then they would lead the prisoners back out of that city into freedom. That's the picture Paul is trying to give us. When Jesus came, he came down, he descended to earth so that he could set us free. The, the scripture says he came to set the captives free. We're the captives that he set free. And it says that when he ascended, he's leading forth a host of captives. He now has us. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. We are his, and he is our leader. And it says when he ascends, he gives gifts to men. Now, we've been talking about this. If you've been attending the men's Bible study on Saturday mornings, you've been hearing about this for weeks and months, really, because we've been in John 14, 15, and 16 is the very uh, last days before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's preparing his disciples for what he's about to do. And he says, listen, you're not going to like this, but I'm about to leave you. I'm going to go away. And of course, they're confused by that thought. They're terrified by that thought. They don't know what to make of that because they have this picture of him that he's going to be with them always. He says, I'm going to leave you, but it's actually better for you that I leave. 
Because when I leave, I will send my spirit, and the spirit will guide you into all things. So he says, greater works will you do after I ascend than even I did while I was on earth. And you go, how could you do greater works than Jesus? They're greater not in quality, perhaps, but in quantity. He says, listen, instead of you needing me physically with you to be empowered, I will empower you through the person of the Holy Spirit, and everyone who is a follower of Jesus will be empowered by the Holy Spirit wherever they are, whenever they are, and whatever they're called to do. Now, I'm telling you all this because this is going to really come into play in the next few verses. It is so important for us to understand, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted the gospel at face value, if you have bowed the knee and and invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And that means that you, not your pastor, not your mama, you are filled with the power of God. What did he pray for for us in chapter 3? That you would be filled up to the fullness of God, right? And what he's saying is, when he ascended, he made that possible through the Holy Spirit. And he gave gifts to men, gifts, spiritual um, gifts, abilities that we will have in order to carry out what he wants to do on the earth. He'll do it through us. Do you understand that you are an essential part of God's plan for the whole world. You are an essential part of this team, this team that we call the church. You are an essential part of your family. Nobody else can play the role that you can play in your family. You're an essential part of of the body of Christ worldwide. Nobody else is exactly who you are. Nobody else has to offer exactly what you have to offer. It's an incredible thing. Now, I want you to think about a football team, not a weak football team, a great football team, okay? Now, let's just theoretically say that, that there's this great football team that wears blue and gold, okay? And now, we see these guys running out of the tunnel, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been to one of the games where you, you're standing close and these guys go by, but you don't get an appreciation on TV. These people are gigantic, Right? They're gigantic. They're like six foot eight, 350 pounds. Their shoulders are this wide. These guys are massive, but not all of them. Like if you look over here on the left, that guy number 99, he could eat your car for lunch, right? But if you look in the middle there, number 24, he's a little guy. He's like 180 pounds, right? The other guy's 350, twice his size. So why in the world would you have on a football team gigantic guys And little, small, fast guys. Why would you do that? Because not everybody has the same role, right? Somebody, that that gigantic guy that could eat your car, he can't run very fast. I'm just telling you right now. Say what you want to him and take off running. He'll never catch you, okay? But the little guy, he runs like the wind. So the way football works, I know you're like, thanks, we came to church to hear about football. Um, The way football works is you take the big behemoth guys, the giant guys, and you put them up front, and then you hand the ball to the little guy, and he runs behind them, and they knock everybody over so he can run, right? If you were to ask somebody who's a big football fan, you said, hey, who's the greatest football player of all time? You'd hear all kinds of people named, but most of the people you hear would be quarterbacks. 
The quarterbacks are kind of the central guy. Everybody knows the name of the quarterback. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that calls the plays. He touches the ball on every single offensive play. Obviously, the most important part of the whole team. Here's what I want to tell you. You give me the greatest quarterback of all time in his prime, take away his offensive line, and he's toast, right? In the church, we tend to have this view that somehow there are people who are really key, really significant, really needed, and then the rest of us are just sort of guys who come along. You know, most people cannot name the linemen on their favorite football team, but they can all name the quarterback. And the same is true in churches. People know the pastor, they maybe know the the worship leader, they maybe know the elders, the women's ministry director, or, or the different people who preach. They know those people like those are the ministers. And the rest of us, we're just sort of, we're in the uniform. We're just part of the team. And, and Paul is going to challenge us on that way of thinking, and he's going to try to shake us out of that way of thinking, because as long as we keep thinking like that, then the church will be about as successful as a football team with no linemen. God has equipped us all differently. If you are a Christian, you're a part of this. If you are a Christian, you're not a guest here. If, if, if my family and I invite you over to our house this week, we say, hey, come on over for dinner. We're going to have a big dinner in, in your honor, and we want you to come. We're going to eat at 7. Come on over. You know what's going to be happening all day long? And if you've been to my house at my wife, if, we, if you're coming on Friday at 7 to our house for dinner, Monday at 2, it's ready for you. It's set up, right? And if there are chairs that need to be moved or certain uh, plates that we're going to use or whatever, that's it. We're just eating outside on paper plates all week because we can't mess with any of that stuff because she's got to have it ready. She's the most organized and amazing event planner in the whole world. And if you've been to my house, you know what I'm talking about. That's how she is. So, so... All of that work is going to be done. When you show up for dinner at my house, we're not going to ask you to carry in chairs. We're not going to ask you to set the table. We're not going to ask you to cook the dinner. We're not going to ask you to do the dishes. You're our guest, and we want to serve you. And that's the same attitude that we have at Grace Fellowship, by the way. If you're here today visiting with us, we didn't ask you to come set up these chairs or vacuum the ground or create the sound system or lead the worship or preach the sermon. We're just glad you're here, and we're thrilled to serve you. We wouldn't expect you to do anything. That's why we always say, listen, if you're visiting with us, we're not asking you to put money in the offering. That's the least of what we want to do. We want to make sure you know that we are here to bless you, and we are here to serve you. But if you're a part of the family, if you're a part of the Spriggs family, and we're having a dinner party, I guarantee you, you've got a job to do. You're going to be cleaning the house. You're going to be helping with the meal. You're going to be washing the dishes. You're going to be doing all that stuff so that we can bless our guests because it's different to be a part of the family than it is to be a guest, right? It's exactly the same in the body of Christ. We are part of the family. And one of the mistakes that we make is that we tend to look at the upfront personalities in the church as the ones who do the ministry and the rest of us are the guests. And the, and and, and frankly, we church leaders are responsible to this, for this to a great degree because the last 30 years in America, we have been just fostering this sort of consumer mentality amongst people who come to church. Who's got the more comfortable seats? Who's got the funnier pastor? Who's got the better musicians? Who's got the better program for our kids? Who's got the, the coolest building? All of that kind of stuff. Y'all come, y'all come, y'all come. Whatever we can do to bid, 
fill the building. And the rest of you just sit there and you just listen and you take and you consume. And we've been teaching people to live that way as Christians. And I'm telling you, it's dead wrong. It's the exact opposite of what it is to actually be a member of the, of the family of God. We all have a role to play in this family. Listen very carefully. If you don't get anything else, get this. You count. You absolutely matter. You are an essential part of what God is doing because only you can be you. Only you can play the role that God designed you to play. I have a newsflash for you. Some of us have been thinking about this all wrong. You don't go to Grace Fellowship. You are Grace Fellowship. Does that make sense? You don't go to church. You are the church. Now, I'm not being, I don't want to pick you apart for semantics. If you tell somebody, hey, I'm going to church tomorrow, they know what that means. But do you see how that's just deeply in, uh, in our heads? Church is a place that we go to or a program that we attend. It's not a community that we are a part of. And the Bible says just the opposite is true. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the community of believers. Now, look at verse 11. We're back in, in Ephesians 4. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let's just stop there for a second, and let me just spend a minute in verse 11 with you, because he lists these four different offices, basically, in the church. He, he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and Pastors and teachers, those are not two different things. They're, it's actually pastor-teachers, right? It's one phrase, one term. So the pastor who teaches. And, and basically he says, there are these four offices that are very prominent in the church. What he's saying to his audience is, I know you've all seen these guys. These are the guys everybody can name. You know, uh, these are the people that when you go into this, this area in this neighborhood, you go, oh, that's his church. He's the leader of that church, okay? These apostles, these these uh, prophets. Remember when, when um, the, the early church had to be corrected because some were saying, you know, I'm of Paul, and others were saying, I'm of Apollos, and others were saying, well, I'm of Peter, and they were arguing over which apostle was theirs, right? Which one they followed. And Paul said, listen, you're all of Jesus. You're followers of Jesus. But they, they relate to these apostles. They relate to these prophets. Now, in the early church, this is the first century, the church is just getting established. We don't have the canon of Scripture. The New Testament is just being written at this point. Um, and, and the church is just getting established in a, in a culture that is either Judaic or pagan, right? They know nothing about Christianity. Christianity is brand new. And so there were these guys called apostles. And, and the apostles, by definition, are the leaders of the church who were appointed and prepared specifically by Jesus for this role and called by Jesus to live out this role. And so these are the apostles, and God gives to the apostles this incredible power, and they have ability as apostles that there are things they can do. They, they, they heal the sick, they raise the dead, they prophesy, they write scripture. There are all these things that the apostles do that are not done by just the average Joe out there, right? That's the role of apostle. Well, now... The church is established. Now the Bible is completed, and we have it in our hands, and every one of us has the Holy Spirit. And so we don't have apostles anymore, people who actually walked with Jesus and were commissioned by Jesus. We don't have them, but they had them then. 
And the other thing we don't have today is the office of prophet in the church. We don't, regardless of what somebody else might tell you, as you read the scripture, we don't have people today who are speaking new revelation from God. The word of God is complete, amen? The Bible is sufficient, amen? And so, so whenever someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, they better be reading from the scripture or you better question what they're saying, right? The, the, the word of the Lord has been delivered. Now, there are still, there's a gift of prophecy, which is sort of the ability to speak forth God's word in a way that convicts and challenges and all that kind of stuff. But the office of prophet doesn't exist in the church anymore, in my opinion. Now, so apostles and prophets, we don't have to worry about, but he also says there are evangelists and there are pastor teachers. So the evangelist in the church today would be people whose names you know, people like Billy Graham. You think Billy Graham is maybe an evangelist? Yeah, he's had a little success with that, right? Or, or today, Greg Laurie is a very well-known evangelist. I mean, you can be sharing with your neighbor about Jesus, and they're kind of like, huh, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm not so sure about this. And then Greg Laurie stands up in a stadium of 100,000 people and says the same thing you said, and tears roll down their face, and they run down on the field and give their life to Christ. And you're like, what's that about? Well, part of what it's about is that Greg Laurie is called to be an evangelist. That's his giftedness. That's his role in the church, right? And so all of us are called to do evangelism. You don't get off the hook that easy. All of us are called to share the gospel, but there are some people who are especially gifted for that role in the body, and that's, that would be people like the ones I mentioned. And then pastor teachers, that's the role that I play at Grace Fellowship that you're familiar with. That's, that's kind of the, the uh, person who takes care of the leading and the feeding of the flock, basically. And so he's saying there are these people, and they're prominent like most anybody who's been to this church more than once or twice, unless you happen to come when I'm out of the country or I'm not here or something, if you've been here, you know that I'm the pastor. Most of you recognize my face. You could be, this might be your second or third time, and you walk in and go, oh, that's that, that pastor guy. I heard him preach last week, right? I'm, I'm a prominent figure in this church. There are other prominent figures, people who are up on this platform or leading different ministries and things like that, that you know. And we tend to think of them as the minister's in the church. But here's the deal. Those are key roles, but those are not the only roles in the church. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because the church, we have this wrong idea. Most of us view the church kind of like it's a pyramid instead of like a body, but the Bible says it's a body. So let's just look at this example on the right, first of all, where it says this is not a picture of the church. You see that triangle? That's how a lot of people think about the church. There at the top, that would be like the elders of the church, and then the senior pastor right below that, and then the other pastors and staff would be right below that, and then maybe the key ministry leaders would be below that, and then key volunteers who help in different areas would be below that, and then somewhere down near that bottom line is where most of us see ourselves. We're the ones who come and we sit in the chairs and we listen and we get ministered to, and, and that's how we think about the church. And what Paul is saying is as long as we think about the church that way, the church will never have the impact that it's meant to have in the world today. The Bible never talks about the church like that. The Bible talks about the church like a body. And, and, and a body is, is a profound symbolic illustration of the church. Because in a body, every organ does its job, right? And if it doesn't do its job, does that affect any other parts of the body? Yeah, and I don't care what the organ is. I don't care if it's a fingernail. I don't care if it's an eyelash. If it's not doing its job, 
the rest of the body will suffer and begin to break down. You will not be healthy if any part of your body ceases to function the way that it's supposed to function. There are some roles in the church that are more prominently displayed than others. Think of it this way. Um, when you, whenever you meet somebody, you always notice their nose, right? And, and some of them you notice right away, right? But, but you always notice somebody's nose. You can't hide it. It's right in the middle of your face. You, everywhere you go, your nose gets there first, right? It's, the, it's this prominent feature right in the middle of your face. If you got a horrible nose, then you're ugly, right? That's just the deal, right? That's why, that's why plastic surgeons are making a fortune because your nose is this thing that everybody sees. There's nothing you, can do. you can't just walk around like this and, and people won't see you, right? It's very, very prominent. Everybody has a nose that you notice. And yet, everybody also has feet and you never notice anybody's feet. And, 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 and for some of us, that's for good reason, right? Um, we wear shoes to cover up our feet because some of us got nasty feet, right? And we don't want anybody seeing our feet. They're just covered up. We, and, and nobody ever stops and goes, man, that is a great set of feet you got there, right? You almost never hear that. Um, nevertheless, which do you want to be without, a nose or feet? Neither, right? They're, they're absolutely necessary. Some are more prominent some are less prominent. Some are more seen. Others are less seen. But it doesn't mean the ones that are less seen are less significant. The elders and pastors and staff members at Grace Fellowship or any church, for that matter, have a role to play. But it's not the only role. And it's important for us to remember this. My primary role in this church is to help grow you in your roles. Look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What's for the equipping of the saints? That he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. He gave those gifted people to the church. Why? To equip the saints. Now, here's the quiz. Who are the saints? We are. I don't know what kind of teaching you've had. Have you heard the saints are some people who are in heaven and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, there are saints in heaven, but there are saints on earth too. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ in the scripture is called a saint. And so what is he saying? The, the pastors and evangelists, the leaders, their job is to prepare the rest of the body of Christ to play their role. My job is to equip you to be all that God has in mind for you to be. That, by the way, is, as I was talking about at the beginning of my message, why I preach from the Bible. Guys, my opinions are no more valid than anybody else's opinion. But if God has an opinion, I think we need to hear that. And so I preach the word so that you will be equipped. I want you to be ready to play the role that God has in mind for you. And so the pastors and elders of this church are specifically gifted and called and, and they're carrying out their roles. But the other roles are no less important, and we need to carry those out as well. Um, picture this. We talked about this a little bit. Remember the coach in the locker room getting us all riled up? When the game starts, what's a coach do? This is, this is Sean Payton. He's the coach of the New Orleans Saints, one of the greatest coaches in the history of football. And you look what he's doing while the game's being played. He's watching. He's watching. 
And I guarantee you, because I've been coaching for a long time, I guarantee you when you're standing on the sidelines and your team is out there stinking it up, you're just wishing you could go in and do it for them. But you can't. The players play, the coaches coach. And so that coach has done what he can in practice. He's done what he can in the locker room before the game. And now he's standing out there waiting until halftime when he gets to play again. Right? Everybody's going to go into the locker room and he's going to make the adjustments and fire them up and send them back onto the field because they have to play the game. I am just a coach on Sunday mornings. The game's out there. This is just the locker room. My job is just to get you prepared to play the game, but the game's out there. Listen, we've got to get our mindset changed on this. 99% of the work that God is doing in the world today, he is doing outside of the walls of church buildings. This is where we come to worship him. This is where we come to meet together for to be edified and to grow together so that we will be ready to get out there and play the game. And if you don't think of yourself as a player on the field, you're thinking of yourself wrong. If you don't play your role, it won't matter how well I've played my role. It won't matter how prepared I've made you if you won't play your role. I can give the world's best locker room talk, but if you won't run out on the field and play, then the game gets lost. Years ago now, my wife was in a minor traffic accident. She injured her neck a little bit, and so the insurance company sent her to a chiropractor. Now, I had never been to a chiropractor in my life. I didn't know if chiropractors were legitimate. I didn't know if they're quacks. I didn't know. I had no idea what to think of chiropractors. And frankly, I was uh, pretty skeptical. And so we go in there, and, and he tells us, starts telling us what he wants to do to treat her neck. And, and I said, you know what? I don't mean to be rude. I'm just going to be honest. I'm not sure if you're legit or not. And so what I need you to do is you're just going to, I'm going to come with her to every one of her treatments. I want to see what you do, and I need you to explain to me the science behind this. I want you to tell me why this works and why you're doing what you're doing. I don't want to hear this, I can cure cancer by adjusting your back stuff. I want to know what you're doing, right? And so I would come with this like four times a week. She had to go in and have this therapy, and I would go in, and I'd sit and listen, and I was getting to know this guy, and, and I had been having this problem for like two weeks. My left eye was just twitching. You ever have that happen? It's fun, isn't it? I mean, I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even function. Just twitch, twitch, twitch. All the time, my left eye is just twitching. And so finally, I said, hey, do you know anything about why my eye would be twitching? My left eye is twitching. He goes, well, get on the table. Let me see. And, and I said, okay. So I lay down on the table, and he, he puts his hands behind my neck, and he just starts feeling my spine. And he asked me this question. He says, do you ever get um, tingling in your left hand? I said, all the time. It's tingling right now. I can barely feel my fingers. And he goes, okay, relax. He goes, twist my neck. My eyes stopped twitching and my hands stopped tingling in a moment. And I went, I'm sold, right? <laughs> amazing, amazing. I'm like, okay, I get it. I said, why did that happen? How did you know my left hand was tingling? He goes, well, there's a spot in your neck here. There's nerve endings that send messages to your brain for your hands. And the one on this side is for your left hand. And it's the same nerve that sends messages to your brain for your eye. And I could feel that your neck is out of alignment there. And that nerve is pinched. And once I took the pressure off that nerve, the, the um, messages flow freely. And your hand and your eye stop 
malfunctioning. Now, I learned such a great lesson that day. My, my little tiny nerve ending in my neck, nobody has ever come up to me and said, Doug, you have the most beautiful neck nerves. <laughs> nobody, ever, nobody ever compliments me on my neck nerves. Nobody even thinks about them. But I'm telling you, when your eye's twitching and your hand is tingling, you think about it. And when that little nerve that no one even thought about was malfunctioning, my whole life was messed up. That's what happens when just a little part of the church, just little old you that you think is so unimportant and so inconsequential, when little old you stops playing the role that God has gifted you uniquely to play, when you decide, you know what, I'm not feeling great today, I'm just going to stay away and let everybody else, I mean, I'm just attending church anyway, I'm not the church. If that's how you feel, then the rest of us lose. And not only do the rest of us lose, but we can't function as a body for the purpose to which God has called us to. We need you. About a couple weeks after Christy and I got married, I started having this pain in my low back, and it wasn't muscle pain. It was down in the bone, really low down, and and I just like, I don't know what's wrong. It's just uncomfortable. I stretched. I had heating pads and ice. And, nothing. and every day it got a little bit worse. It finally got to the point where I can't even really sit down. It's, it's like the bottom of my spine, just pain. And um, finally I got to the point where not only could I not sit down, but I couldn't lay down. And so at night, I mean, the pain is excruciating. And I'm up pacing the floor at night because there's nothing else I can do. And I'm just literally going... It's like the Lamaze class, right? I'm like working on my breathing and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure it was much worse than giving birth. And so, so, <laughs> come on, you liked me a minute ago. Listen to the story. So, I, I, I got to the point where I couldn't even lay down and I couldn't sit down. I could only stand up. And if I had to talk to you, I'd be like lean on a counter like this because, I, I mean, it was bad. And it finally got to the point in the middle of the night, Christy gets up and says, you know, she can hear me. I'm whimpering. And she comes out and goes, what? I got to take you to the doctor. She takes me to the emergency room and the doctor looks at it and he goes, yeah, and he does this test and everything. And he says, you have a cyst on your tailbone and it's very infected. And that's the problem. Okay, what do we do? Surgery. We're going to have to do surgery. We have to do all this. Okay, when... Like, can we do it now? I'm like taking off my shirt. Come on, let's get... And he goes, he goes, so here's the thing. I know it hurts, but we have to let it get worse before we can operate. <laughs> if we don't let it fully form, then, then when we operate, it will just spread. And so we have to let it get worse. I said, there's no such thing as worse. And he looked at me and goes, this is my specialty. It gets worse. <sighs> okay, so I go home. Three more days, every day the pain doubles. It's the point where not only can I not lay down or sit down, I can't stand up either. It's like my only option is floating. I'm Lord, help me float. God, please, something. And, and it's, it's like literally tears just rolling down my face. And finally my wife says, I can't handle this anymore. You're such a baby. I'm taking you in, right? And so she takes me back in and he looks and goes, yep, it's ready. So I tell you that fabulous story to tell you this. Three major surgeries later, I now have so much um, 
damage to my tailbone and the region around it that I still can't sit for long periods of time. Pray for me when I get to fly to Africa. That's the hardest part of my mission trip. I got to be on a plane for 25 hours, right? Just excruciating. I got scar tissue, so much scar tissue that it gets all, um, it gets irritated and then that causes, and I can't even function at times because of it. And that's 30 years later. What's the point? The point is, you, you think nobody compliments me about my nerve endings? I could promise you nobody ever compliments me about my tailbone region. I could promise you that. And yet, that little region that no one ever talks about, thinks about, or, or has any idea about, has had such an impact in my life. Here's the point. Every one of us is a part of the body. And every part of the body is essential. And if we stop playing the role that God has called us to play, the whole body is compromised. That's the deal. You can't just sit by and let the upfront people do the ministry. That's not what ministry is about because most of what God is doing is out there. That's why he tells us in verse 12 that the roles of these prominent leaders is to get the rest of us to be who we're supposed to be, to prepare us to be that. So Sunday mornings for me, this is the locker room. This is the pep talks. I just happen to be gifted by God to do good pep talks. That's my thing. I'm a pastor. This is my role. And my role is to help you become who God wants you to be because 99% of what happens, happens out there. It happens, happens in the warehouse where you're working. It happens in the hospital where you're caring for patients. It happens in the neighborhood where you live. It happens in the family that you are a part of. It, it happens in the classroom that you go to Monday through Friday, nine months out of the year. That's where ministry takes place. That's where Jesus is changing lives. And I don't go with you to those places. And that's why Jesus said, when I ascend, it will be better for you because I can't go with you everywhere now, but the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will give you what you need to do exactly what I intend to do in your life and through your life if you'll trust him and follow him. You go, okay, what does it look like when we do that? Look at verse 13. So we're supposed to pay attention to these leaders who are equipping us for the work of the service of the ministry until we all attain, verse 13, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's what he's saying. Church, it is time for you to grow up. Remember, he prayed this for us in chapter 3, that you would be filled to the fullness of God. He's saying, how's that look? It looks like you playing your role in the body of Christ. How do you know if we're on target? Well, there's a test. It's simple. He gives us three things in verse 13. First one, are we growing in unity? I won't spend much time on this because we talked about this for a long time last week. But are we growing in unity? Did you ever see, wasn't it um, Dr. Doolittle? Do, do you remember Dr. Doolittle? There was a, um, an animal in Dr. Doolittle it was a horse with a head on each end. Remember that? It's called a push-me-pull-you. Remember that? So I should have put a picture up because you're like, no, Doug, I think you dreamed about that. No, there's really this, this animal in the book, and, and the whole idea is one head facing this way and one head facing this way, and it's always pulling, right? And so this one's always going like this, always working and going nowhere, and this one's over here, always working and going nowhere, and the only thing it's achieving is a backache. And that's what so many groups of Christians look like. 
That's what so many local churches look like. We're going in different directions. We're working at odds with one another. We're not trying to support and encourage one another. We're trying to one-up one another. And we're trying to get into these positions of prominence so people will know how important we are. And that's what we're doing. We're pulling in different directions. And the church is going nowhere, and it's giving the whole world a backache. We've got to be unified. We've got to stop competing with one another. We've got to work together. Second question we've got to ask ourselves. Are we growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? It says that you would be built up in unity and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to beat you up with this, but I'm also not going to let you off the hook too easily here. If, if you're going to take seriously what Paul has been telling us and what I've been trying to, to shed light on this morning, that you are the church and you're the one that does the ministry, then you're just going to have to live with the fact that you probably need to know Jesus a little better than you do. You, and, and you need to know about Jesus some things you don't already know. And, and there's just too many of us in Christian circles where we just go, you know what, um, I'm going to let the, the, the pastors and the Bible study leaders and those missionaries and people like that, they'll study the Bible and then I'll come, they'll teach it to me and, and it will help me. Guys, as long as we have that attitude, there's a world out there that's going to hell without Jesus and we're not going to reach him. We need to know about Jesus. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to write commentaries. You don't have to write Bible studies. You don't have to preach sermons. But you know what? If you're a Christian, you need to know about Jesus. You need to know who he is. You need to know what he's done. You need to know how he changes lives. And the answers to that are in your Bible. And you need to get to know Jesus because you're the one that has to tell your friends about him. You're the one that's going to live this exemplary life. It says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we have to be ready always to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Because when people see us living like Christians, they're going to say to you, what's with you? And you have to have an answer. And so you got to get to know Jesus, and you've you got to get ready to share him with other people. We've got to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And the third thing, ask yourself this, are we growing in maturity? See, who you are becoming in Christ is way more important than how much information you can regurgitate on a test. When, when my kids were in school, you'd have to go to parent-teacher conferences, right? And, and you sit down, and the teacher would tell you, well, you know, um, he's, he's getting a B in algebra, but he's really struggling in, in biology, but he's really good getting an A in English and, and PE, and so he's doing good in those things, but you're going to have to really help him with biology. And that was all interesting to me. I wanted to know that because I wanted to help him succeed academically. But when the teacher was done telling me all that, I always had questions. I would say things like, hey, is there anybody in your class who's, who's really hard to love? Any outcast that just doesn't have a lot of friends? Yes. How is my child doing with that kid? That I want to know. Is my child loving on people that are hard to love on? That I want to know. I want to know if my child is respecting the authority of the teacher or is being disrespectful. That I want to know. I want to know whether or not my kid is expressing courtesy and humility and kindness to people. That I really want to know, right? Now, I can help you with biology, but if your character is broken on the inside, you can know everything there is to know about biology, and it won't matter. You're going to fail in life, amen? 
So I want to know, is my kid growing in maturity? Man, and I remember I would, I would coach my son in baseball, and he was this star baseball player, and he was hitting home runs and doing all this kind of stuff. And people would come up to me, oh, your kid, he's such a good player. He's, a, he's such a good pitcher. He's such a good outfielder. He's such a good hitter. And I, that's always great, especially when you're the coach. You go, yeah, that's my boy, right? But I don't care about that. But if you come up to me and you go, listen, my son's really been having a hard time because he's not a good player. And your son has just come along and become his friend. And I just want to thank you for that. Now my chest swells with pride. That's what I want to hear about my kid, right? And as your pastor, that's what thrills my heart when I hear it about this church. You know, it's, if, if people come, listen, the musicians we have on this stage every Sunday are ridiculous, are they not? incredibly gifted musicians. People come in here and go, wow, a church this size, the music is that good? I mean, Ricky is phenomenal at what he does. And if you come in here and go, man, the music is so great. Or if you come in here and go, hey, the chairs are so comfortable. Or I love the lighting system and the way you've done that. Or I love the way you painted the nursery. All of that's great. I'd love to hear that. But you know what I really want to hear? I want to hear that when you visited Grace Fellowship, there were people who treated you like a human being, like you were special, like you mattered, and they loved you and treated you with kindness and grace and integrity. You tell me that, and as a pastor, my joy just soars. Are we growing in maturity in the things that really make a difference? Listen, no disrespect to Ricky, but there are a lot of great singers, musicians, and guitar players out there. But you guys, are the key to what makes this church matter in this world. If you play the role that God has called you to play and let the Holy Spirit work in you. So let me sum it up and I'll finish. If we take it all that Paul is saying here, here's what he's saying. Church, it's time to grow up. I, I saw this quote this week. It really caught my attention. Um, somebody said, Christians are the only adult mammals that expect others to feed them. That, that in Christianity, the idea is, if I'm going to grow by, by consuming the Word of God, it's going to be because someone fed it to me. That's why I come on Sundays, because I need the preacher to feed me. And God bless you if you're getting fed on Sundays. That blesses my heart. I want you to get fed. But guys, if you go home Monday through Saturday with a Bible in your hand and it doesn't get opened up and you don't feed yourself, whatever else you are, you're not mature. And God says, we got to learn to feed ourselves. He's given us the Spirit and the Word. What are we waiting for? Oh, if somebody spoon feeds me, then I'll grow. And you know what? Churches that change the world are filled with people who are consuming God's word and walking in obedience to it. And that's what God has called us to. Make no mistake, God's plan for this world is huge. And you, not just the person sitting next to you, you are an essential part of God's plan. And so we got to grow up. You do the ministry. God is using you to change the world. Please don't sit on the sidelines and watch. You put on the uniform. You came to the stadium. Get out on the field 
and play. Because there's a world out there that desperately needs to see Jesus. And they're not going to see him by looking up into the sky. They're going to see him by looking into your eyes and watching how you love people.